Each evening, we'll explore aspects of uh, metta practice with the aim really of giving orientation to our practice, exploring different uh, parts of the territory. And so this evening, I'd like to uh, give an overview of the nature of meta practice. What are we doing? Why are we doing it? How are we doing it? And what happens if we stay with it? And we've already stayed with it quite a bit. So I think of metta practice as very simple and yet radical. We're really training to develop the capacity to bring a kind of wise embodied kindness to each moment. That's it. And it's amazing that uh, such an approach in a way uh, exists. That we have this uh, possibility in the human life of living with a kind of wise embodied kindness. And that that kind of wise embodied kindness is actually, as uh, Kanda suggested in quoting from Dr. King last night, it's actually um, strong, very strong, and capable of meeting uh, everything in life. And so there's this continual intention, which is embodied in the way we do the practice, to bring uh, as much as we can a sense of kindness to each moment. So we're undergoing a training. And training is just as much as we can keep coming back to that intention, which is expressed uh, for many of us, maybe most of us, in the phrases which we repeat to ourselves internally. I have a friend who, um, whose uh, message on her uh, phone goes like this, you know, basically, hello, leave your message and be kinder to yourself than you think you need to be. <laughs> so basically, uh, two things happen in meta practice, and I'll be kind of giving a gloss on these two things. One is we intend to move towards that kindness, and that's expressed through our work with uh, phrases or other ways of doing metta. We incline towards the kind, wise heart. And then secondly, 
we see what gets in the way of it. That's pretty much it. We incline towards that kindness and we observe what is in the way, whether it's here at the retreat or in daily life. And sometimes we, on a retreat, find things that stand in the way that we weren't quite aware of. It can be very uh, humbling and um, revealing. And so I, I find it really amazing that this is a vocation that we actually find in multiple spiritual traditions to dedicate one's life to kindness. And I would say to a wise embodied kindness. This is from the, from the Metta Sutta, which will be uh, very possibly uh, chanting uh, in some of the evening sessions. It's from uh, almost 2,600 years ago. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. And again, in our time, to hear that there is a path of peace, that one can be skilled in goodness, it's almost goes against some of the, what, cynicism or sense of what's uh, possible in our times. Wishing in gladness and in safety may all beings be at ease whatever living beings there may be, omitting none, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none. So with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world. It's an amazing intention, amazing uh, pillar for for one's life. and so central to so many traditions, from the Jewish tradition, from the Talmud. The highest form of wisdom is kindness. From several thousand years ago. This is from a Christian tradition, Thomas Merton. Our job is to love others without stopping to inquire whether or not they are worthy. That is not our business, and in fact, it is nobody's business. What we are asked to do is to love, and this love will render both ourselves and our neighbors worthy. And from the uh, Islamic tradition, uh, the Prophet Muhammad said, Shall I not tell you of something which if you do it, you will love one another? Spread the greetings of salam or peace among yourselves and you will love one another. A little more, uh, what, prosaically, uh, Rumi, also Islamic tradition. Love is the water of life. Drink it down with heart and soul. And then, you know, then uh, from uh, Dr. King, again, uh, it's uh, a blessing to have our retreat uh, at this time, which, which overlaps with his birthday. This call for a worldwide fellowship 
that lifts neighborly concern beyond one's own tribe, race, class, and nation is in reality a call for an all-embracing and unconditional love for all people. This oft-misunderstood and misinterpreted concept so readily dismissed as a weak and cowardly force has now become an absolute necessity for the survival of humanity. When I speak of love, I am not speaking of some sentimental and weak response. I am speaking of that force which all of the great religions have seen as the supreme unifying principle of life. And so our practice is simple. We incline through the phrases especially towards the the sense of warmth, what uh, Anushka called unstoppable friendliness. (laughs) Friendliness, goodwill, warmth, kindness. We incline in that direction, you know, and it's a training. And I think it's very important to know that the practice is really an intention practice. We're inclining in the direction. And in a way, we do our best with the phrases, with our method. But it's not, I like to say it's not a production practice. I'm not sitting here saying, Donald, be loving. Be filled with metta, Donald. But rather, I like to think it's an intention practice. We incline with the phrases and then whatever happens, happens. And sometimes there may be a sense of warmth or kindness. And sometimes the opposite's there. You know, we say to someone we, you know, maybe a benefactor, may you be uh, safe, may you be happy. And then we have the comment, you're already pretty happy. I'm the one who needs happiness. What am I doing here? Right, and so, anyone had something like that occur? Yeah, it's, we, we, in a way, we uh, say the phrase and we, then we don't know what happens. Sometimes the warmth and kindness is there and sometimes other stuff happens. I'll speak in a moment. We, we, like, we th- talk about meta practice as kind of purification practice and stuff comes up and stuff comes out and that's normal. Our only uh, work, as it were, is to keep on inclining towards kindness, particularly through the phrases. In the tradition, the reason why metta practice works when we stay with it, and this is really the finding of the Buddha and of the ones who have uh, gone deeply, we might say, the finding is that the depths of our nature reveal love and wisdom and connection. And that what stands in the way is actually more superficial. It can be pretty strong, right? But we, we, you know, metaphors often use that our deep nature is like the sun and clouds obscure it, but they don't uh, get rid of the sun. And so our practice is really to, as it were, reveal the clouds, get to know them and open up to the sun 
the Buddha said that there was a quality of our being which he called the brightly shining uh, quality of heart and mind. And he said that was connected with metta. He said the mind and heart are brightly shining, but they get covered over. He says that when we have freed ourselves increasingly with the practice of metta, that our mind and heart shine and glow and radiate like the moon. That there's an inherent radiance that we can touch at times. So we're not producing the metta, in a way we're revealing the metta. We're, we're going in that direction. And it's said that even those who have committed un, very unskillful and we could say awful things, that quality of metta in the heart is still there. It's in there, it's there in all humans and in many of the Buddhist traditions, it was, it was said in all beings. And yet we know that the practice is hard, right? That there are many, uh, many experiences, many qualities of mind and heart which seem to stand in the way of that radiance occurring. You know, and a lot of them, a lot of them surface on the first day. I'll mention a few. Maybe I'll ask for a show of hands. It's very helpful. You know, I was, I was saying earlier in one of the groups, uh, it's very helpful to know that all of the difficulties are completely normal. And I, I, I find myself saying lately, about 80% of what I do in this role is to talk to people and say, what you are experiencing is normal. Keep on going. <laughs> That's it. All the other stuff, like this talk tonight, it's all gloss. It's mostly just saying, you're doing fine, it's normal, keep on going. Okay, but someone has to give talks. So, so one major uh, challenge is, is simply being distracted, right? That our minds are very active, uh, you know, modern technology helps with that. We know that uh, what electronic devices, particularly phones, have been constructed with addiction in mind. You've, you've probably read those studies, right? So um, it works, right? So we, we, you know, we go to past and future, we get distracted. You know, and so part of our practice is a training <clears throat> to how many have been distracted at least once today <laughs> okay, that's normal. <laughs> Keep on going. You're fine. Okay. Okay. You know, a second is um, sleepiness. Anyone experience sleepiness today? Okay. Look around. Okay. It's normal. Keep on going. It's fine. <laughs> We can be restless. Anyone restless today? Okay, it's normal. Keep on going. It's fine. Um, sometimes really just uh, not feeling the heart very accessible. Anyone sort of stay with the practice, but you didn't find the heart really there. Yeah, look around again. Ditto. 
normal, <laughs> and so forth. Different forms of reactivity, you know. Could be uh, anxiety or self-judgment or judgment of others or all sorts of things appear in the mind. Could even be a confusion and doubt as to what we're doing. Anyone experience that? What am I doing here? A week? <laughs> but um, the first day for those, especially for those here for the first time uh, at any retreat, which I know some of you are, the first day is really always the hardest. And in a few days, today will be an unpleasant memory. (laughs) So what we can do with our practice, uh, partly to meet some of these challenges and really part of the way that metta works is we develop a more settled mind, a more concentrated mind. We learn more and more to access our hearts and to have our hearts be in a way uh, um, present to us and and um, with that with which we meet experience. Sometimes I use a phrase, we like to lead, we can learn to lead better with our hearts. And we work with that which stands in the way of the kind heart. Again, we can call that sometimes purification. There's a purification process that goes on. At times we can touch the depths in our meta practice. We can feel that radiance, which uh, when we feel that, uh, even if we get a little bit lost, we know that that's potential. And then, so we, we go through that training and then gradually we bring, we bring out the metta into our lives. This is the training, we're at a training here and we, we're here for a week and we can also think of our practice at home, our formal practice as training, but then gradually we bring the metta out into the world. So I wanna cover those areas and give a kind of a orientation and overview of our metta practice. So the first is that we learn to be more settled and loving kindness practice in itself is a way to have the mind be more concentrated. We're doing one thing continually and starting tomorrow morning, we'll be bringing the meta practice to uh, all the parts of the day. Some of you are already doing that, but we, we, it becomes a practice that we uh, do continually. We do it in the hall, we do it in our walking, we do it in the meals, we do it in our rooms. It's like there's no question as to what we're doing. <laughs> you know, it's, you know, only one thing. <laughs> yeah. And there's a, a simplicity to that. It can be challenging, but there's a simplicity and a beauty to that quality of I'm just doing one thing here. You know, and I can be skillful and you know, see what's wise given what comes up, but I'm only doing one thing. And there's a way that the mind can get settled and it cuts through uh, cut, cuts through distraction. We steady the attention more. And that can be uh, a wonderful discovery, you know, that we 
we are able to learn how to be relatively undistracted for long periods of time, you know, and then bring that back into our daily lives. One of my teachers uh, teaches um, concentration practice with federal judges, right? It's something that really can be, can benefit any, anything we do in the, anything we do in the world. And there's, there's a way that that uh, subtleness of mind can bring out the kind heart. And there's a, there's a line from uh, uh, a Russian uh, hermit of the 19th century named Theophane in the Russian Orthodox tradition who said that um, uh, dispersal of attention, being distracted, dispersal of attention diminishes warmth that the quality of kindness and warmth is actually pretty focused when it's there. And so we learn how to be, we learn how to be more settled. We keep coming back. And so again, the development and that settledness, the stability of mind is simply from keeping on coming back, seeing where we have been away from the sense of metta. And just a guideline that can be, can be helpful. <clears throat> Generally in our metta practice, when we're just staying with metta, if thoughts come up, when we notice the thoughts, we don't so much uh, label them like we might with mindfulness practice. We don't really stay with them. We just come back to the metta. We just keep coming back. You know, the only time that we would stay with something if it is of a significant duration, if it lasts maybe a few minutes and has a fair amount of strength. So one example might be if I'm here practicing metta and maybe there's been a loss in my life in the last few months and I'm practicing and suddenly that experience of grief comes up and it's there and it's strong for a while we wouldn't simply try to suppress that and come back to metta if it's there and lasting. We would rather in a way open to mindfulness practice, maybe compassion practice and just be with it. But otherwise, when we just have our, what, uh, ordinary distraction, we would uh, just come back without needing to note the thought. We don't need to note planning or remembering. We would just, as soon as we notice it, we come back. We can do that again in the hall and the, the meal and so forth. And as we get more settled, there's some very beautiful effects. We get more peaceful, relaxed. We feel a certain stillness that can be more ease. And we can have that sense of the incredible riches of a, of a focused, settled mind. You know, it can, it's, it's powerful. And many of you know this, but that, to have that experience of deep settledness and maybe bringing out the metta, uh, it's one of the glories of life, right? And it's, it's powerful because there's a tremendous sense of, I don't need anything else. This is so beautiful and full. It's something that we can rest in and it teaches us something about not needing so much to look externally. It can be very powerful in that way.
I think we know how uh, distraction manifests, wandering thoughts, fogginess, uh, and so forth. One of the very interesting ways that uh, distraction manifests in metapractice is following Heather's um, mention of the uh, alliteration. We have what, what we call technically meta models. See if you find some. You know, some from my, that I have found from my own experience. Um, you know, one of my phrases has sometimes been, may I be free from harm? And I found myself in a bit of a muddle once saying, may I be free from form? <laughs> okay, I won't go into the possible meanings of that. But, um, another time, may I be free from squirm? <laughs> Uh, um, may I be free from something? <laughs> or another one, um, one of my phrases was, may I be happy and contented? And it became, may I be happy and cemented? <laughs> <laughs> or another one, may I, instead of may I be, may I be uh, free and live with ease, became may I be free and live with lice. Anyway, th this happens when we're not fully attentive, right? So maybe we'll have a, a contest for the most interesting meta models. So yeah, please um, let me know. <laughs> okay. So just a few suggestions for what really constitutes uh, a skillful uh, way of settling the mind, because they're there are a few things that can be helpful. The main thing is to keep coming back. And we, we need a balance of something like uh, persistence, but also ease. Not too tight, not too loose, right? Keep coming back. See if you're a little bit tight. If you are, let up some. And some of us may be a little bit loose, right? Sometimes the attention in meditation, as many of you know, is likened to uh, a lute, kind of a lute, a, a stringed instrument where the strings are neither too tight nor too loose. It's a good metaphor for our practice. So we wanna, we can even ask ourselves at the beginning of uh, a session, you know, do I need to be a little bit uh, uh, looser? Am I a little tight, too much effort, too tight an effort? Or am I a little bit overly relaxed, not quite enough uh, proactive effort just to be with the phrases? We can ask that. And so really see what you need. But that, having that sense of that balance of ease and persistence or ease and firmness, really helpful to uh, ask how that is for you. It's also helpful to know that uh, being settled, being concentrated is really mysterious. Things develop in a strange way. Maybe some of you already noticed that you could be really, really distracted but, and really just out there not much happening, you stay with it, and five minutes later, you're right there. Anyone notice something like that happening? It happens sometimes, right? And you can, uh, you can uh, just stay with it, and you think, oh, this isn't going anywhere. You stay with it, and five minutes later, it's very settled. Sometimes it's like that. And sometimes it can take a while. When, when I was first doing metta, um, 
I actually was doing it kind of on my own. I'm not, not sure I had very good instructions. I was doing it on my own for a week. And I didn't seem to be getting anywhere. And then uh, one morning after breakfast, I wasn't even doing the phrases. And I didn't think, ah, this, maybe meta's not for me. <laughs> Anyone have that thought? <laughs> okay. Um, and I, I thought, maybe metta's not for me. It's not getting anywhere. And um, over breakfast, I heard myself say, just like, I heard myself say to myself, I love you. <laughs> and I said, whoa, where did that come from? Right, so it's mysterious. Things happen in mysterious ways. Uh, Sharon Salzberg tell, tells a very similar story of having done a week of metta. This was like a long time ago, again, before we even had metta retreats. I think mine was before that time as well. And we didn't have such good instruction and she was doing it and she didn't think she was getting anywhere. You know, now she's kind of what, the queen of meta, right? Um, and, and she had to end her retreat a little early because there was some kind of conflict in the community she, need, she was needed. And she uh, kind of was a little bit of a hurry and she knocked over a vase and it broke. And she said, you're such a klutz. But then she noticed right after that, she said, you're such a klutz, but I love you. <laughs> Very similar to mine, it was like, where did that come from, right? So it's mysterious, right? How the heart opens is really mysterious. We know that if we stay with it, it happens, right? It doesn't happen really on your, necessarily in your timetable. My, my brother is a musician and play, you know, uh, he, uh, in one of the bands he was in, they played an old uh, Southern gospel song, which was talking about Jesus, but it said, uh, uh, how's it go? You may not like when he comes, but he's right on time, right on time. <laughs> A little bit the same thought, cross traditions, right? So more of that, it's mysterious, right? We don't always know how the heart opens. We can't sort of say, okay, heart, you should have opened by now. Meta's not for me, right? Just, just to stay with it, really. Stay, not easy, but just to stay with it. So there's also a way in which our training in metta is about learning to lead with the heart. You know, to have our heart be there. And, and for some of us, this can feel natural. And for some of us, it's not easy. When I was first doing it, it wasn't easy. I think my own conditioning was to uh, lead uh, with my mind. Partly as a young man, when I was learning, that was my conditioning. I was a student and I was, you know, I thought I was supposed to be thinking all the time, right? And I knew I had a good heart because I cried during driver ed movies <laughs> in high school. <laughs> so I had no doubt. <laughs> you know, and I also, I remember, you know, I sometimes cried, which wasn't all that common for teenage boys. It sometimes made me popular. Anyway, that's another story. <laughs> Anyway, um, but it took a while that the conditioning was to be thinking, you know, and it's, it's sometimes hard. So to learn to lead with the heart was something that I needed really training in. 
to really have that be more normal. Some of us maybe have more ease in going there for whatever reason. Different kind of upbringing or just, you know, a lot of it's related to gender. There's a lot of conditioning around opening the heart related to gender. So, um, you know, it's interesting. I haven't counted the number of men here, but historically we've always had something like 80 or 85% women at this retreat with completely open free registration. I think it's different this year. Yeah, it's different, isn't it? Maybe, should I generalize? Things are changing, I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, they're, you know, they're gender dimensions, you know, for, for many of us. The way I think for me, certainly, it was harder. And we, we learn how to lead with the heart. And again, the, the principle of all training is that we open the heart as, uh, where it's easiest. You know, with all trainings, we develop and we train where things are easier. And then gradually we bring the training into harder, harder situations. And so it's really the, the principle here. So we start with the metta where it flows the easiest. And it's really the way we encourage practice the first three days. That means with the metta muse, the category, you know, some, something self, benefactor, dear friend, we stay there. And again, the, the dear friend, the benefactor, doesn't have to be a human being, can be a pet, could be uh, uh, another, another kind of being. Again, as Heather said, it could be a public figure, but we see where that flows the best. And gradually we bring uh, the capacity to lead with the heart, even where it's more challenging, you know? So ultimately, and this is very clear with the life of Dr. King, we can bring that quality of love and kindness into challenging situations, you know? And can really develop that sense of bringing kindness and love, even where, th- where there's conflict, where there's difficulty, harder, of course. But loving kindness is not about being nicey-nice, you know? It really is something ultimately, like we've said a few times, it's powerful. It can be there with very difficult situations. And again, we have to train for that. We have to develop the capacity where it's easier. And then we can work up to that. <clears throat> There's a purification process, uh, really thirdly, I wanna, there's a purification process that occurs in meta practice. And again, we notice things which are in a way standing uh, in the way of our fuller expression of metta. Some of them we know about, some of them we don't know about. And we sometimes experience them on the retreat. You know, and so we can, we can notice our fear or our um, unresolved grief or some self-judgment or um, again, could be uh, our distractions. And we notice these and we have ways of working with these qualities, but this part of the meta retreat that things come up, you know. And, or we might find that there's some knot there and sometimes it manifests in the body. Sometimes it's more emotional. Sometimes it comes as repetitive thoughts. It's part of the process. And again, we can work in a variety of ways with, the, with what comes up like that. We can hold it with compassion. This is where uh, tomorrow in the afternoon we'll be bringing in compassion practice. It can be really helpful 
for holding with the kind heart uh, the challenges that come up. One of the challenges that's very uh, fierce at times is the challenge of self-judgment. Can be very, very strong and can surface, you know, especially especially the first day. Anyone experience any self-judgment? Yeah, whoa, it's a lot, right? So it's there and we can notice it, we can be mindful. Again, we'll be bringing in a way with compassion to hold it. But again, it's very, it's very normal. And there are ways of, there are really ways of um, working with this over time to really give some room for it, notice it, be mindful. Try not to be hooked by it. One of the, uh, one of the ways that we can actually deepen our settledness, and it's really related to uh, self-judgment, at times, if we're just having the same loop come up over and over again, whether it's self-judgment or something else, something that's sometimes helpful is just to say, no, not now. And actually have a little bit of fierceness with it. Not now, right? That's one strategy if something's repeating over and over. And it's just, well, again, whether self-judgment or, you know, or some planning of something in the future. And we can just say, not now. And we can, you know, maybe it's something important. We can come back to it at the end of the retreat, you know. Um, generally self-judgment is especially helpful to have compassion, to notice it. Sometimes we can actually bring our attention into the body and feel what's beneath the self-judgment. If it stays for a longer time, more than just uh, you know a minute or two, sometimes we can actually be with it. That's when we can sometimes use mindfulness and be with it, and sometimes we can notice something beneath the surface. You know, what I found from my own explorations and from teaching in this area is that uh, almost all forms of judgment of others in the sense of being judgmental of others or of oneself come from some kind of unacknowledged or unprocessed pain. And when we process that pain, the judgment tends to clear up. There's typically pain beneath a lot of the uh, aspects of the judgmental mind. And sometimes in retreat, we can touch that in the body and in the heart. And I feel, oh, that hurts, you know. You know, I wish this was happening or, um, no, that happened. I'm really sad about that. And we touch the sadness and sometimes the judgment dries up. Another way that purification occurs is that we tend to uh, see ways in which our kindness, our warmth, our metta is uh, mixed in with what we sometimes call a near enemy or a near miss or a near opposite. It's one of the really subtle teachings that we'll be exploring throughout this week that each of the Brahma Vihara, loving kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity have uh, what we might call uh, uh, um, a tendency at times to, to manifest in a kind of distorted version. And so loving kindness sometimes can be overly grasping or possessive. 
And part of what we, part of what we'll notice in our practice, is it like that sometimes? Is my, is my kindness more unconditional or is there, are there strings attached? And of course we see this all the time in, in daily life, right? And part of the purification is noticing that. And, and there are counterparts with compassion, the, the, um, one of the typical distortions is some kind of pity, you know, and so forth. And we'll see that, that it's somewhat, it's somewhat the real thing, but somewhat distorted. That's another way that there is some kind of purification. And as we, as we develop more with our, our metta, we start to touch our depths. We also, I think, start to balance out the, the wisdom and the heart and the body. And the metta, this has been a theme that we have, but the, the metta, even though it's a distinct practice now, over time, there's more wisdom involved. There's more mindfulness involved, even though we're doing a different practice. And we, one, of the, one of the themes I think has been particularly carried by Sylvia Borstein over the years in this retreat is really pointing to how the wisdom factor, the mindfulness factor, and the heart ultimately are integrated. We could say the body, the heart, the mind, the wisdom, they get integrated. And this is more and more how we are in our lives. This is really pointing towards that kind of integration, which is so crucial, I would say, for our culture. You know, where the mind and body and heart are often really separated out. That this is part of the development that we're undergoing. We're connecting, we're connecting these different parts of ourselves. It's really crucial process. I think it's very crucial from an evolutionary point of view for our society, for our culture, to have people who have all of these elements um, connected and integrated. And we touch ultimately our depths more and more. We touch that deep radiance of our own, of our own being. The mind and heart are brightly shining, but they get covered over. We have that sense of interconnection. There's a beautiful uh, passage from the uh, Discourses of the Buddha where he talks about having gone to visit a group of uh, monks who are collectively uh, called by just one name. They're called the Anarudas, <laughs> which I've always thought kind of sounds like a band, you know, <laughs> like the Anarudas. So anyway, the Anarudas are this group of monks who live together and they've taken the name of the senior monk, you know, and they have, uh, they're supposed to have this uh, quality of harmony. And so the Buddha talks to them. He says, how are you doing, you Anarudas? <laughs> you know, they all have other names, but they're just called the Anarudas. And, he's, and, they, and how is it, you Anarudas, that you are living together on friendly terms and harmonious as milk and water blend, regarding one another with the eye of affection? Anaruda says, we have developed metta in regard to acts of body, speech, and mind. We have diverse bodies, but we have only one mind and heart. A sense of interconnection and unity through metta. 
He says this has all happened through metta practice. We have that sense of connection and uh, a kind of oneness in our community. He said we no longer prefer our own happiness to the happiness of others. And finally, we bring our practice out into the world. We'll be saying more about this towards the end of the retreat, but I would just wanted to say a few things uh, here. There's, you know, there, again, there's the way that we train here, we develop further stability in metta here, and then we'll give a lot of suggestions for how to bring it out into daily life. And metta is beautiful because it really is amenable to being practiced in all sorts of aspects of daily life, sometimes more easily than mindfulness. You know, people practice, some of my students practice metta, driving cars, public transportation, meetings. I've lately been doing uh, lap swimming and doing metta practice. Very nice, I do like one being for each lap. Works really well. <laughs> and it's, uh, yeah, very nice. Um, and so there are, it's, uh, it's very amenable, but we train here and then we gradually find ways to make it real in our daily life, c- continually developing that sense of, of metta. Um, and we can bring it into our daily flow, we can bring it into our interactions, our meetings, and you know, uh, great beings like King or Gandhi actually were able to bring their sense of love, we could say metta, kindness, even into social change. That their movements, they thought, were guided by love, were guided by not having enemies, by bringing a sense of warmth and kindness to all beings. And I've been reading lately some of uh, King's uh, talking about his conversations with some of, the, some of the southern jailers. He had tremendous empathy and kindness. It was amazing to, amazing to read just how he would uh, speak, you know, and he could see that the poor whites were being manipulated. He could really see through, not so hard to see, but he could see that. And he could see that there were actually were far more commonalities. And he would have empathy and he would talk to them and have, have a sense of connection. Uh, Cornell West says, the public face of love is justice. The public face of love is justice. Interesting, right? And so I wanted to uh, really finish up with some stories that I just heard a few days ago uh, from two of my students. And these have to do with, um, these have to do with one of the great uh, sort of moral and spiritual issues of our time, which is that of uh, immigration, refugees, and so forth. And um, one of the stories is from one of my students who lives in Tucson, Arizona, which is, about, I think, about 30 miles from the border. And she's part of a group 
that goes down to the border and looks for people who may be uh, crossing the border and so forth and tries to give them support and help. And she, I think this is a story expressive of Metta. She was just a few days ago um, at the border where she said they've, uh, just in the last week or two, they've added barbed wire where there was no long, there where there was no barbed wire right there, right on the border. And uh, she was with a group and they were driving back and they encountered someone who uh, seems to have crossed the border. It was a young man. And when they talked with him, he said he hadn't eaten for three or four days. Right, and they gave him some food and she wanted in some ways to help him, but she knew that if if she um, took him in her car, uh, she was committing a felony. And so there was this sense of intense wish to help and a kind of anguish, kind of moral anguish at the situation. You know, the metta was really strong, but it was like, what do I do? And she gave him some guidance and hoped that he was okay, right? So it's really coming with that spirit of metta and being in a very difficult situation. And second story, I'm gonna not give some of the details for reasons of um, not making some of the details too public. So um, this is from another student of mine who lives uh, away from the border. And I'll just, I think I'll read his, uh, his account. We started weekly visits to the detention center uh, this past July, shortly after learning that it houses immigrant, immigrant children aged 12 to 17 detained at the border. It's about 45 minutes from my home. The children are almost all traumatized. They have traversed huge distances, often alone, fleeing violence, uh, war and drugs, mainly in countries south of us. Many are orphans. Kids could be there because they are dangerous to themselves or others or things have uh, gang tattoos or the color of a t-shirt when they were apprehended would have suggested gang affiliation and led to their separation. Some probably just freaked out when they were captured because they didn't know what was happening. At the center, the staff are undertrained, and it is rumored that many are demoralized. Those with the most open and tender hearts tend to develop a shell to shield themselves from secondary trauma. Most staff don't speak Spanish, which is spoken exclusively by most of the children. Allegations of mistreatment have come to light and some charges are substantiated. So he was visiting with a meditation group. When we visited, we have occupied public land near the entrance where the local police told us we were permitted to be. The children have no access to windows so they cannot know that we're there. Using Google Earth, we can see that there is a central courtyard and when the weather is nice and the wind is blowing the right way, we have sometimes heard them playing. I started going there initially because I felt I just had to see the place this symbol of what appeared to me to be gratuitous cruelty and which had been the subject of such disturbing press coverage. 
Our visits had a regular structure. We began each visit by stating intentions, one person reading them. Then we had a 30-minute period of meditation. One of us would offer some guidance if requested. A book of poetry written by kids who were detained there was recently published, so we would then read one or two of their poems. Sometimes we did Qigong together. We then had a second 30-minute period of meditation. We ended with a brief closing, dedication of merit, and a group hug. The intentions and dedication of merit always included the aspiration that our presence would be of benefit to the children and all those charged with their care. Usually we were there for two hours. We were very careful about who we told about our activities. We didn't want to engage in argument or debate with people who would either oppose our action since it wasn't a protest or would knowingly or unknowingly attempt to co-opt it for a political purpose. One Sunday there were a dozen of us, but typically we had two to four people and several Sundays it was just one of us. I guess that means him. (laughs) We had beautiful signs that my wife made with large red hearts on on them. One says, we care about you, and the other says, te vemos, we, we see you. I usually use the first meditation period to arrive in body and mind, practicing basic mindfulness mainly. In the second practice period, I practice metta. Some people would sit on the grass or curb or cushions, but I always stood facing uh, the center. Standing made me feel especially open. I often felt an expansive sense of space there, and I found radiating metta to be especially powerful. It's a form of metta where we radiate out from the heart, which I think we'll do in a little while, in a few days. On my own or together with others, I was able to develop a strong sense of energy radiating from my heart center and penetrating pervasively the stone walls of the center and touching everyone who I imagined was in it. So meta practice at the detention center. We offered a friendly wave to every person we encountered. The road was typically quiet, but a few cars would go by. Sometimes someone would go by on foot. Most people would return our waves and that included the police and security personnel. Some people responded enthusiastically. A young woman without a jacket, no money and no phone, just released from the nearby jail, joined our circle one day in October. A teenage girl visiting her brother, we cried together. It is as if by opening one's heart in this way that one can radiate an energy that others can sense and are attracted to. On our very first visit, on an oppressively hot and humid July day with no shade, Following a large protest there a couple of weeks before, two guards came out to us. We shook hands and my wife and I told them clearly that we were there to offer kindness and compassion to the children and also to the staff. They offered us water. Our stated caring for the staff did not seem to register for them, but over time I came to know these men more. A couple of weeks ago, when I was there by myself, I took donuts for the staff. (laughs) Once before I had taken bagels and they seemed confused by this. (laughs) Although they did accept them. We were deliberate in not offering food too much because we suspected that they would think we were trying to manipulate them or achieve some particular goal, which we were not. As I approached the front door with the donuts, I knew it was a good sign when I heard it unlock electronically before I even asked over the phone. This had never happened before. I stepped into this uh, sally port, the secure anteroom where one can't proceed further. Uh, and when the voice came over the speaker asking what I wanted, I just said, 
I brought donuts. The reply, the reply was, one moment. <laughs> when the door opened, it was the guard supervisor whom I had met back in July who stepped through. I reiterated that I was with the folks who show up early every Sunday and we offer our good wishes for all the people there. I said I, didn't, I couldn't know what his job entails, but I knew it must be hard. Donuts weren't much, but they were something. We ended up chatting for some time, then suddenly and completely unexpectedly, he asked me, would you be interested in coming inside to try to help? I told him, yes, I absolutely would. I first asked him what he thought would be helpful. He told me anything that would help them deal with the stress and difficult behavior. I suggested that it might be helpful for the kids to do some movement that could help them be grounded in their bodies and then perhaps be more calm and helpful. I suggested that maybe mindfulness could help the staff be more patient and happy. He was very interested in both of these. I have since learned that while a few other people have offered support for the children, virtually no one has expressed any interest in helping the staff. So such offers have not generally been well received. <clears throat> Using contact information that the guard gave me, we have started the involved process for two of us to be cleared and trade for volunteering there. In a few months time, we ought to be visiting inside weekly. In the meantime, there is a lot to do to prepare. <clears throat> this experience has been transformative for me. Everyone I know longs for a change, for a better, more just and peaceful world. But I have a deep belief now that it is enough to simply show up with an open heart and not know. So if I get updates during the retreat, I'll, I'll pass them on. But that's in process now. There's the, the intention to bring metta to a place of, of difficulty and pain. That's our trajectory. We train and then we bring it out into the world. So let's just sit for a few more moments together. So we learn better to, with metta practice, steady our minds. <clears throat> we learn to lead more with our hearts. We go through, at times, a process of purification. 
both opening towards the beautiful and the radiant, <clears throat> and also encountering that which blocks that radiance. And at times we touch that, uh, that radiant depth of our being. We know it more and more. And then we bring in our own ways, using our own gifts, our own inspiration, we bring this <clears throat> training and kindness out into the world, out into a world which deeply needs the, the gifts of metta, the gifts of kindness. So thank you for your kind attention. We have uh, <clears throat> more meta practice, <laughs> walking meditation. And we'll come back at uh, nine and we'll have uh, uh, probably a quite short uh, session at nine. We won't go maybe, I don't know, 10 or 15 minutes shorter, but we'll, I think Kanda has the intention, or do you of starting with a little chanting? Yeah, we're gonna start with some chanting. It's a very nice way to finish the day. So if you have some energy, it won't be that long. Okay, so thank you again for your kind attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.